This is the Living Vertizano podcast, brought to you by The Church at Riverstone, a fellowship of the Church of the Nazarene in Madera, California. Today's episode focuses on the beheading of John the Baptist and the feeding of the 5,000 found in Matthew 14, 1-21. Together, we will be discussing the decision to either live into or reject the kingdom of heaven. Hi, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Natasha. I'm Brittany. And I'm Derek. And we are the Living Vertizano podcast back with you this week to continue our journey through Matthew as we turn the page on chapter 13 and move into chapter 14. Um, Just as a quick reminder, uh, last week um, we were exploring kind of the last of the parables, and in those parables we were really faced with this this idea of what is our response when we're standing face-to-face with the kingdom of heaven, right? We had been working through the kingdom of heaven parables for a few weeks, and it ultimately ended with this, what's our response? Um, Because it is called for. Um, And so this week, we're going to be transitioning uh, away from this these teaching blocks, this this one of, of the blocks that Jesus teaches in, and into this narrative block of Matthew, where now we get kind of two stories um, that we we come to, and the first being uh, the beheading of John the Baptist, and uh, the second being Jesus feeding the 5,000 and the miracle there. So um, without further ado, Natasha, will you take us through those? This is Matthew 14, 1 through 21, um, and then we'll come back with some conversation. Sure. Go ahead. Right, so chapter 14, verse 1 says, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, The disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send these crowds away, so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, 
and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. All right, so that's our passage for the day. Um, let's jump in, guys. So what, what are we seeing here? What are your thoughts? One of the things that really struck me, since we're in this uh, season, I guess, of Lent, or uh, sorry, of Advent, we're in the season of Advent, <laughs> and um, we, we just kind of came out of the week of, uh, or I guess in the week of peace, um, I was struck by in verse one and two, how we see this really clear picture of what it looks to, like to exist outside of the peace of Christ. Um, here you have Herod and he's, he's made this decision, right, based on pressure um, and, and this desire to be accepted by, by his dinner guests. Um, and so, and now he's feel filled as a result with worry, fear, suspicion, anxiety, unsettledness. He's unwhole and, and like the complete essence of the absence of peace, um, that's there. And so I just, um, I think for me, I just was struck with this like contrast of this is what it looks like to exist outside of the kingdom of heaven as we're coming out of this conversation from chapter 13. Yeah, that's... That's a good point. I hadn't even thought about that. I guess because I, I thought about the the flip side of that conversation of what it looks like to exist in the midst of the peace uh, that that Christ brings, and how John, um, I mean, he, he's not a dumb guy. There's no way that John is is dumb, and there's no way that he thinks he is going to be able to speak truth to power like he was with Herod and not have some kind of consequence associated with it. And yet he still did it because ultimately he recognized that it, it doesn't matter what happens here to me as a result of doing that which God has called me to do. All that matters is that I am doing what God has called me to do because my wholeness is not found in this life, but in my relationship with God. He has this boldness in the face of authority. Right. When Much we, like uh, <laughs> when we were discussing this on Sunday, a thought that came to my mind was that truth brings death. It either brings death to the behavior that, that Herod had lived in with what we read about in this relationship where it brings potentially physical death as we see with John, which kind of foreshadows what we will see with Jesus. So the truth, being confronted with the truth will bring death to something. That's good. I think in, in taking what you said further, Natasha, about what it looks like to exist outside of the piece, I mean the continuation of the verses demonstrate the pressure that Herod was under. Um, I think it's interesting too, that he has conviction. Like we see provenient grace, right? We see Jesus talking to this person who doesn't even recognize he's living in the kingdom. Um, so we see played out what we've had uh, conversations about in previous episodes. 
um, where Herod is, he's distressed. The king was distressed, it says in verse nine. And that I feel like is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. God speaking to Herod and telling him what, like the good he ought to do. And then it says, but because of his oaths, because of his dinner guests, he disobeys and he rejects the kingdom in that moment. And Herod was a, a hearer of Jesus and or John, sorry, he was a hearer of John. And so he had been listening um, to what John had been saying. So he knew what he should do. You know, he could hear um, the things he needed to do. Mm-hmm. So again, whether intentional or not, it seems like the author of Matthew is pretty intentional in what he's doing when he's doing it. We just come off a conversation of like a response is expected when confronted with the kingdom. And here we actually see a narrative of a playing out of what it looks like to be confronted with the kingdom and choose to walk away and choose to ignore it, choose to reject it, choose to attempt to overthrow it even potentially. Um, as, as Herod decides to, you know, behead John the Baptist. I feel like this, this passage, the first portion of this passage, passage uh, through verse 12, that there really is a lot of, of like foretelling, like John, e- even the death of John is going before and, and laying the groundwork for what, what Christ's life will look like in the end. I mean, it's even so similar that that there are people coming to collect his body. Like, there's so similarities in this story of of John being the one who goes before. Um, and so, I think that it would have been easy. Like, you know, we see Jesus as we move on to the second portion of this. Like, Jesus goes away, and it would be easy to go away sad. And like from my perspective, when I would go away, I would. I would be trying to avoid the things that brought death upon John. And when Jesus is confronted with, you know, doing things that that he that were bringing um, potential were bringing I don't know how to say it like it, it was bringing everything upon him that that he was that we would have tried to avoid um the the potential wrath of of a king um Jesus doesn't avoid that. He he runs right toward it. Like instead of avoiding the fire, it's as if he's running right toward it because instead of not doing any more miracles, like that's the very thing that he does. We see him go and like and like whether it's intentional or not, you know, he's going in, he's healing the sick, and then he's feeding the five thousand. And so, you know, it would have be it would be easy for me to just say, if I want to stay alive, like don't do this. But Jesus knew like what his position was. He knew what the father had called him to much like John knew that he was to be a, you know, a proclaimer of the truth. Jesus is the truth and he's not trying to avoid that. He's living into what the father's called him to do. Yeah. I, I think, uh, that's the thing that really stood out to me the most, um, with these two separate narratives that seem to be like this uniting narrative of the two is this similarity that is drawn between 
John and Jesus and how um, even to the the very thing that led them to their death, right? Like John speaking spoke truth to power with Herod. Jesus is going to be speaking truth to power with the Pharisees. And that is ultimately going to be the thing that, that kind of is the tipping point. Like Herod is the one that led to the death of John and the Pharisees and their plotting is going to be ultimately the thing that leads to the death of Jesus. Um, and so it's like, there's all this foreshadowing that happens in the first passage, the, the, the first narrative story that we read. And then we get to this, when Jesus heard that what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. I think I have always read that as, well, of course he withdrew because back in chapter 11, like Jesus talks about how like John is dear to him, right? It's a, it's a good friend. He's talking with, with John's disciples in chapter 11 after John has been arrested and uh, Jesus speaks his total support for John. And so when I, when I've read this before, it's always been like, of course he's going to go away sad because like his really good friend that he's potentially even grown up with is, has been killed. But I think there's so much more here because of who John is. John's not just the friend, as you pointed out. John is the voice in the wilderness that is preparing the way. Like he, he is, John was the prophesied to be the thing that was the marker of the Messiah coming. And essentially, not only did John go before Jesus in proclaiming the message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, right? That was John's message. That's Jesus's message too in these, in the early parts of his ministry. But here we also see him going before in death. And I think for, for me, when I came to that realization, I began to read verse 13 in a different light. Maybe there was some sorrow there because it was a friend but I think there was probably also an element of kind of a, a garden of Gethsemane moment where Jesus is like, this is it. Like I'm not that he's going to die today, but like this happening to John, this is the road that I'm on. And John has been preparing the way and he has now prepared the way for my death. Um, and so almost like there's this, now that it's this transition that it, that takes place where up to this point, and, and I shouldn't say there's a transition that necessarily takes place in his ministry, but more this transition that I guess maybe takes place mentally for me to this point, there's been this, this, um, I don't know, hope and excitement and not that hope and excitement goes away, but now it's like, the hope and excitement is tempered with the reality of the cross that's to come because death is coming. It's like the no turning back moment. Yeah. This is the point that I recognize, like I've been sent with a purpose and I, I can't turn back kind of like the, the, like we talked about last week with the, the, um, like selling everything that you have, there's no turning back. And this is like Jesus's recognition or maybe, maybe my way of recognizing like this, there's no turning back. Like he is going forward and he does, he does it 
in a similar manner um, with it, with a similar amount of boldness, because instead of stopping doing what he's doing, he's like, like I'm imagining, like I'm just getting started. Like in my mind, that's how I rationalize it. Like I've just begun. Like you, you haven't seen what, what the father can do through me or, or anyone else. And that there's that kingdom peace, right? That propels him forward to be able to continue on in his ministry and continue. Like he turns around and goes and heals all these sick. Um, So are you saying that just as Herod was faced with the reality of the kingdom of heaven and he had a choice to make and he made one choice, Jesus is faced with the reality of the kingdom of heaven as well, and he has a choice to make, and he makes a different choice, and we see what ensues. Yeah, and we so, get to see the peace of the kingdom lived out. Actually it, breaking in. And it brings sad... I love the, that... that I don't know if all the versions do it, but my Bible's NIV, and it, it uses the word in verse 20, they all ate and were satisfied. Um, so it brings, brings you to this place of wholeness or shalom, right? Satisfied. I don't know. I just nothing. I think that's so cool. Yeah. Not only were they all satisfied, but when I was looking at the commentary, it talked about the 12 basketfuls being left over. And so not only did he satisfy all the people there, but he can satisfy all the people of Israel. Like it's not just for those who were there, but it's for those who weren't there. Mm-hmm. And so his, his peace can satisfy those who were in attendance, but it's, it's still good. Because you have the symbolism else. where each of the baskets left over represents a tribe. Yeah. Oh. And so there's still there's still enough. Like as long as we have air in our lungs, there's still an opportunity. Yeah, that's interesting because these stories really do sit in direct contrast of one another. Like, here's your pathways before you. You know, I just talked about what the kingdom of heaven is like. And I've just talked about how there's going to come a point when you come face to face with the kingdom of heaven and you you will have a choice to make. And here's your two choices. And here's the consequences of those choices. One leads to death and one leads to life. One leads to chaos and torment. And one leads to peace and fullness and satisfaction. There's two sides to the chasm and there's only one way across. Uh, cross. Well, and, and Jesus, <laughs> Jesus is Jesus is making the way right. um, for that chasm to be bridged, because on our own, like we're on the other side of the chasm with no way across, and confronted with the truth, we can either choose to stay on the side of the chasm where it's desolate and you know things can be good for a while or it can seem good forever, um, we're confronted with the truth. And I, I don't know, for me, it just sticks out. Something has to die when, when we're confronted with the truth. Either we choose death or we choose to allow God to kill the behavior mm-hmm. or to kill the sin within us. The other thing that really kind of jumps out at me again it happens in the midst of this transition between the two narratives. Um, it's in verse verse 14, so it's a little, little further down, right? It's right after the withdrawing. Um, 
the context is the crowds follow him on foot from the towns and he is coming to shore. And when he, when Jesus landed and he saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. And the thing that grabs me is Jesus in the midst of a moment of um, mourning, uh, of difficulty, chooses to not allow the bad situation to dictate his response and action towards those who are calling out in need. Um, Jesus is essentially Jesus's compassion um, leads to restorative action in the midst of him kind of having a moment where he's bumming out. And, and I think nobody in this room and nobody would think poorly of somebody for mourning the loss of a friend. Nobody would think poorly of somebody for mourning when they realize like, Oh man, death is near, right? Somebody who is just given a diagnosis where the prognosis is really bad. Like nobody's going to blame that person for withdrawing for a moment and being like, this is a major bummer. And yet, even in the midst of this moment that everybody would say Jesus has a right to have, he says, you know what? I can't stop, though. I still, even, even in the midst of my bad situation, there is need that exists, and I can meet that need. And so I'm going to. And, and I, think, I think for me that stood out because that's probably the opposite of what I do most of the time. Unfortunately, if I'm honest, I think when I am in the midst of a difficult time, I use that as an excuse for me to not do the things that I know that God is calling me to do. Um, whether it's just the, as, as simple as acting nice towards somebody because I'm in a stressful moment, it's like, well, I'm stressed right now, okay? But Jesus didn't do that. (laughs) People people have been coming to him, have been wearing on him. I'd imagine it would have been exhausting uh, to to be in contact, and I, I say that because, I mean, I enjoy being around people, but there does come a time where it's like I need a break. Um, but I would imagine that Jesus and being in his shoes, it was probably exhausting being so confronted and so bombarded and, and with people who just have needs and just want you for what you can do for them. And Jesus says, all right, I'm still going to be there because I see their need and I can meet their need. And that's what matters. He did it even even in the act of dying on the cross. He He does the same thing. So it's like, it never stops. Like even up until his death, like Father, forgive them. Like, right. Like that is an amazing amount of compassion in the midst of death that he can, or impending death because he knows it's coming. And so, yeah. It's interesting. As you were saying that, all I can think is it's as if Jesus is this 24-7 floor nurse and he never gets to go home. I was thinking similarly, um, but thinking about um, 
during this pandemic, um, for those of you who don't know, um, I'm a manager over a lot of nurses, like 150. Um, and it's been really hard. Um, and I just think about when I, when I hear and when I see what Jesus is doing here, it makes me think about my staff and how they have, you know, even if they're having a bad day, they still have to go in and take care of the patient because they can't know specifically when I'm thinking about it, I think of the ICU, um, the room next to them, somebody's dying, but you can't show that when you go in the other room, you have to do be and provide the best care you can. Um, and you know, that's inspiring to me to know, you know, things are not always great. Um, things are sometimes really, really hard. Um, but we just have to keep going. We have to, like Nick said, we have to just, we do have to do what God has called us to do, even if we don't want to. Um, a lot of times I don't want to go around and smile and be friendly with my staff. Sometimes I just want to stay in my office and do the work I need to do because I've got a lot of pressure, but that's not how I lead. I lead by going out and smiling and talking and getting to know my staff and, you know, trying to meet their needs because that's, that's what I'm there for. And that's, God has called me to lead both professionally and spiritually. And Jesus is trying to, to give an idea to what this new kingdom looks like. Like it was lived out through John and now like Jesus is trying to like take it even further and trying to show. And so what better way to show than like, Hey, this is what it means like to be in the kingdom. This is what it looks like. This is what compassion looks like. Even when, even when you know things like are stacked up against you, uh, even if you know your your death is coming, like this is what compassion looks like. I love that he, um, going back to the compassion statement, that he sees people. Um, I think for me, one of the things that when when things go wrong or things aren't going as I would expect, um, either, you know, whether I'm parenting or whether, you know, professionally or otherwise, um, it's easy for me to become absorbed in my own problems. And that prevents me from even seeing people. And so whether there's a large crowd there or not is irrelevant because I'm not even paying attention. I'm not even looking for the large crowd because I'm so focused on whatever it is that that's my issue in that moment. Um, and I don't know, I guess I feel as we're talking about this and having this conversation of what it looks like even more so to live into this kingdom, we really don't get the luxury of focusing on our problems. And that while, and perhaps this is why Jesus gives us the out of saying, Hey, give these to me and I'll exchange them for my peace. Right. Mm. Um, and that's, that's hard to do. It's not, I, this isn't an easy thing. Like in theory, it's great, but in practice, it's much more difficult to, to just be able to be so selfless, so emptied that you are able to see others suffering despite whatever is going on around you. And I just, I don't know. I think that for me is an area that, um, I for sure, I need to, I need to have those compassionate eyes of Jesus, irregardless of circumstance. It reminds me of the parable that we talked about last week 
um, the parable of the um, the treasure or in the pearl. You know, if if the man is so focused on what he has and he doesn't see the treasure that's there, um, he doesn't get the benefits um, and he doesn't do what he's supposed to do. And it makes me think about what you were talking about. Like if we're just going through our day focusing on our problems, we're not seeing the kingdom of God that's in front of us, the opportunity that we have to speak to somebody who needs to be spoken to, um, to, you know, identify that our child is having a rough day, that we need to, this is where we need to go with them. And I I think that um, God is taking, I think Jesus took that parable and put it into action. He gave it feet. Hands and feet. Because then he fed a bunch of people. (laughs) (laughs) I think this comes back to... um, really the the namesake of this podcast again and this idea of living vertizontal because the only way that we that we get beyond ourselves or get outside of ourselves um in in these moments is by taking the time to listen to jesus because it's not going to be my eyes that that see the people around me. Um, I mean, it, it like literally is my eyes, but it's because Jesus is, is drawing my focus to them because <laughs> the intention of me is to focus on me. Um, and so the only way that I can ever find myself getting outside of that selfishness, the selfish cycle that uh, so easily takes hold in my life is when I am um, patient and slow enough to be intentionally listening for what Jesus is saying, where he's trying to take me, what he's trying to do in me, and allowing him to say, okay, Nick, I need you to do this. And and me saying, or me saying, all right, Jesus, like I'm struggling with this. He even says, come to me all who are weary and and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest, right? You kind of referenced that earlier, and I will give you peace. And so in the midst of our chaos, like, we have to make sure that we are taking the chaos around us, that horizontal part, to Jesus, that vertical part, allowing him to speak into it and to speak to us. So that way when we go back into the chaos around us and the horizontal part, we now approach it with the eyes of Jesus instead of our own. And the thing about that too is it is so, as I'm thinking about it, it is so incredibly healing in those moments when your life feels like it's falling apart or your moment is falling apart to be so consumed by someone else's problem that you, I mean, you, you essentially forget about your own issues. I think, um, this is the whole premise kind of of the soul surfer movie. Mm, Um, and like how she goes and, you know, she, she's, obviously like this horrible accident, right? Where for those of you guys who, who aren't aware, I don't know. I think, are you guys aware? No. Oh, okay. Oh, good. Um, so in soul surfer, the, she, she's a surfer, um, and she is excellent and, um, gets in this accident where she's attacked by a shark. Um, and she ends up getting injured super seriously, loses Loses an arm. arm. Yeah. And so, um, like her surfing essentially is over. And so she's kind of slips into this, this withdrew to, to a solitary place 
where she's just trying to figure out how do I do basic everyday things, let alone like this thing that I spent all of my time doing is now gone. My identity is gone. Um, what am I supposed to do? And in the midst of it, she ends up going on a youth trip um, where she gets to care for and teach little kids who... Well, it was it was in the midst of recovery from like a, a tsunami uh, yeah. or so, some major... Like, natural disaster. Natural disaster yeah. event that had occurred on a coastline. And there was just chaos and there was this little kid that in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the depression and crying and suffering, she grabs the kid and does the one thing she knows how to do, which is surf and gets this board and and begins to teach him what she knew to do. Yeah. And, and you just see like it completely changes her demeanor. And I mean, I know this is a movie and so I'm sure the, the real story, I don't know how closely it follows her actual story. So if somebody is, I don't know, uh, been following her biographies, I guess I may be, be off base, but the, the premise of it is still this idea of moving my focus onto somebody else's concerns, seeing someone else having compassion on the other. It's healing for me. Um, and not that that's a motivator, but this just speaks to what the kingdom of heaven is. It's healing for us to extend compassion to one another. So I think that's, I don't know, I think that's an amazing part of of this as well. And I think something that would be like good to bring out for people to understand is that it's it's a journey to get to that point. There's training that's involved. Like it's not not that we should granted there there should continually be change, but if there's not okay like if there's not this instant like, you know, you're seeing everyone like there's an opportunity to grow. So if we're always in this work of communicating with Jesus, there's an opportunity to grow. I think of it like a marathon. We're not like, if we're treating life like it's uh, like a, a hundred yard dash every day, then we're going to miss people. Like we're running from thing to thing to thing to thing and making sure we're doing it in the timely manner that it has to be done. But a marathon takes a lot of training. You're not just getting up and running 26.2 miles. I don't think most people are doing that. So there's training involved. And so it, it, it's a continual growing that we continually look for opportunities for Jesus to train us in this, that we can continue to grow into who he's called us to be. Because, you know, um, I think we would all be like lying if we said we, we get it perfectly right every day. So the object is to not well, say, well, I, I got it wrong today, like I, I quit, but to recognize that Jesus is with me, that he's made a way, and that he's compassionate in helping you to understand how to see and how to hear and, and how to respond to those things. I think this whole time through what we've been especially talking about here in the, the last like half of this conversation the thing that keeps coming back to me, uh, again, coming off of the, the the teachings on what the kingdom of heaven is like, is could you imagine what life would be like if everybody, regardless of what circumstances and situations that they were encountering, if everybody was able to look beyond themselves to see the other. 
I know it doesn't say it here in chapter 14, but I would imagine that that is what the kingdom of heaven would be like. That is what a kingdom of peace would look like, where we are no longer consumed with the betterment of ourselves, but are captivated by the flourishing of those around us. So contrary to what is being pushed out at us, you know, I think about our children and they are, there's this instant gratification. They have these expectations. Um, You can look on any social media site and see all of the things, how they expect you to look, how they expect you to dress, how they expect you to treat people. And um, we're, we're trying to go against that. We're trying to say, okay, think about other people. And um, that just shows that, you know, the kingdom of heaven is really an upside down kingdom. And it's completely um, contradicting what the society is trying to give our kids and ourselves. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, we're, we're looking at it too. But I think it does point to the, the hope that we talked about last week, that there's hope that we can get to this place where the other is more important than us. It's not an easy journey, but I do think it is a place where you find great peace and great rest in the arms of the only one who can bring those things. And so, you know, I, uh, I would say this is a great time of year that we always are thinking of the other, whether it's the other that's close to us. So, uh, family, friends, but it's also a great time to look out at the other. Um, I consider myself pretty fortunate, and so not just in, in a financial sense, but, I mean, God's been so good to us. And Jesus, I just want to make a point to look at the other. We're in a neighborhood surrounded by others, and um, I just you know, hope and pray that my every conversation with people that I meet isn't about me. Because I can talk about me all the time, but it's it's far more difficult for me to be a listener. So Jesus, like, that's where I need help in this other discussion is to be a listener. Like, not just to listen to you, but to listen to those that you place around me. I feel that way too, except for the opposite. Um where you are a talker, I'm more of an, a listener. So um, we had this encounter on Friday night that we were walking out of a, an event and Derek sees people that we know and I'm completely oblivious to anybody. I'm just, we have five kids. We're beeline out of there. Um, but he my t- comment was, <laughs> is your head's always down. And I just, I think this is a good reminder that, you know, yes, I do a good job at that at work, but I need to do a good job at it at home. And when I'm in the neighborhood that I need to intentionally look for people that I know and people that I'm trying to make relationships with and um, not have my head down and pushing my kids out (laughs) down the sidewalk. Be sure to follow the Living Vertizano podcast to stay current on all our new releases. To learn more about The Church at Riverstone, visit us at thechurchatriverstone.org.